hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's evening in Dublin, 1763, and your headache is only getting worse. It's the fourth day in a row, and what started as a dull pain is now downright excruciating. Still, your dinner guests seem to be enjoying themselves, and you're a host with a reputation and an image to uphold. Once again, you attempt to mask your pain with a smile, but soon you just can't bear it and you excuse yourself from the table. By the time you get to the washroom, you feel weak and nauseous. For a horrible moment, you think your dinner's coming back up. When your stomach settles, you glance at the mirror to assess the damage. Your face, which hours ago was perfectly pale, cheeks and lips perfectly rouged, is blotchy now, skin peeling in places. Your eyes are glassy rather than bright. And the sore by your chin, the one you've been going to great lengths to conceal, somehow looks even bigger than it did this morning. When was the last time you reapplied? You rack your brain, but come away with nothing. You haven't had a clear head in weeks, and it's getting worse. What's happening to me, you wonder. You can't take your eyes off the face in the mirror. These days, you're disgusted by it, by yourself, by the sheer ugliness of it all. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. On today's episode is guest Laura Fitzsackery, information officer and museum educator at Dublin Castle. I had the good fortune to chat with her about the prototypical beauty influencers of mid to late 18th century Dublin. Yep, you heard that right. Long before Instagram and big brand sponsors, historical beauties chased fame based on their looks and went to extreme lengths to preserve them for the sake of personal vanity and professional gain. As it happens, a beauty's business had its dangers. Who's ready for their close-up? Laura is an information officer, guide, and museum educator at Dublin Castle in Dublin, Ireland. She earned an MA in Art History and a BA in Art History and History from University College Dublin. Her background lies in 12th century medieval art, but she has a special expertise and interest in the history of cosmetics and their use in Ireland from 1740 to 1970. She currently is writing a book on this subject to accompany an exhibition she curated at the castle in 2017 entitled In the Eye of the Beholder, Examining Beauty Standards in the 18th Century from Fashion to Makeup. She's presented her work on public history at the 33rd Irish Conference of Medievalists in a follow-on from her 2015 publication entitled Working in Public Archaeology. 
She's appeared on several Irish television networks discussing 20th century history. Laura, we're so excited to have you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, do me a favor and give us just a little context, kind of the 101. What time period specifically are we going to focus on and exactly where in the world? Sure. Well, I was really looking at, for you guys, 1740s to 1770s Dublin. And in particular, Dublin as part of the wider colony, as as a colony in the wider British Empire. London, Paris, they were always the centres. They're the height of fashion. But particularly during the 18th century and particularly towards the end of that century, you have huge political and social upheaval in the likes of France and also happening in Ireland as well. What you find with the likes of Dublin, and particularly when you're looking at the journals and what people are writing in their diaries, they want to almost keep up with the continent, the best way to put ah, it. okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so by copying the social strata that you find in both London and Paris, they're applying that to Ireland as well. What you also find in a much broader context is this narrowing of what's essentially like a pyramid. You have this narrow, very few at the very top end of these landed gentry aristocracy who are taking charge of the social status in Ireland and not just even in terms of how they're appearing at court, but just their general influence because it trickles down to a much wider base. And particularly when you're looking at the 18th century as a whole and it moves into the 19th century, you see a huge shift in the focus of physical health or the effects of beauty standards. And so you see a shift in almost like a, a hindsight of the 19th century, looking back mm-hmm. and going, I cannot believe they even did that. And, they, <laughs> and they're almost slagging them off in, in the 18th century. And they, it's this kind of almost uh, enlightened, romantic idea of going, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. And so that's the kind of period we're looking at. Fascinating. And so that self-awareness, um, that, that really interests me. It sounds like that occurred quite early, quite close to the time. It did. It was, it's really, when you're, when you're thinking of fashion, fashion changed just as quickly in the 18th century as it does now. In some parts of the 1770s, it was changing even monthly, never mind yearly or seasonally. Really? Oh, yeah, very much so, particularly during the French Revolution as well, because there was so much happening so quickly at such a small amount of time that the effects of that are going to be felt. And in Ireland as well, you had this contrast between keeping up with the continent, as I mentioned, but also homegrown workers as well. And so you have aristocracy who are essentially taking charge and taking the reins of this market, this fashion scene, you might say. But if you're trying to keep up with what's happening in Europe, you're going to be buying from them. Whereas you're also going to have people who are living and working in Ireland who want you to buy from them too. So then you have these, this almost like, um, not a fight, but a kind of an argument between, like a kind of a, like a, like a tussle between buying abroad and buying at home. And so by the, by the time you get to the 18th century, so much changes, whether you want a London dress or maybe now it's more in vogue to buy a Dublin one. Actually, no, let's copy the French. And so it's really a focus between about three decades, really, between the 1740s and 1770s and around then. Wow. I'm, I'm all right. I'm amazed already. This is really (laughs) quick that you've thrown something incredible. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I just, I'm trying to imagine, and it's not what I would have expected that the communication 
and well, let's call it marketing for want of a better word. That's obviously not how they thought of it then, but how on earth did fast fashion get around in the 18th century? So you would have had slightly quicker traveling as well, um, particularly between London, between Dublin and, and England. We're very, very close. If you have a capital that is that close to Ireland, like London, you can send a proprietor from one of your stores over to London, go to a ball, see what the ladies are wearing, come back, draft oh. up a draft of a pattern and dress a Dublin woman the same way now of course I'm using the word Dublin because that's where it would have been based it would have been based in the social setting that would have been Dublin Castle which was the centre of the viceregal court in Ireland so the representative of the British Empire in Ireland of course Ireland part of the British Empire for just over 700 years and very much during the time of the 18th century as well. So when I'm talking about peerage, it's Anglo-Irish peerage. It's you, you have people from England and Ireland, you've got people over in Ireland and England, and this kind of intermingling when it gets to the aristocratic level. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And so, yeah, you'd have them kitted out in what a lady had been wearing in London only a couple of weeks beforehand or a month beforehand. So, so it's like, Grazia magazine over in the UK, Ireland, or, or People magazine in the US, where you're just spotting what the celebrities today are wearing and people copy that. Yeah, and you even get the term celebrity being used to, to talk about some of these women who you find oh, in society really? at the time. Okay. Yeah, and um, if, we're, if we're looking at the likes of maybe a case C later on or a, a person of focus, they're actually referred to as a celebrity. So you're getting this kind of celebrity status being applied and then this kind of cult of beauty then being formed, being formed around it. I would be delighted if you can take us right down into, into the head of one of these celebrities, one of these beauties of the 18th century. What was, what was her typical day like? What did she wake up thinking about? When you are a beauty or classified as a beauty, there has to be some kind of criteria. You would have been already quite beautiful or deemed as a natural beauty anyway. So waking up, there would have been pressure on you, on your family, especially if your family aren't of a certain social status, because you can use what you have, which is beauty, as your tool to rise that platform of, of, of social structure, particularly if you get invited to somewhere like Dublin Castle. And so waking up, your idea is then to make yourself look beautiful. You've gotten an invitation. You're heading to a, to an, a party. You're heading to a redotto. You're heading to a ball that night. And the first thing you would do, especially if your hair has already been done, fresh padding of powder. And especially because some hairstyles wouldn't have been touched for about two or three weeks. And so you would just apply a fresh layer of powder over your hair. Oh, yuck. <laughs> it sounds crusty. <laughs> Oh, it yeah. doesn't sound beautiful to me. <laughs> it would be a matted mess of dandruff, sweat, whatever else you can find in there. And you, you of course, your head are just whacked on top. Of course, if you're going out then towards the end of the night, there also would have been some public restrooms in some places or public powder rooms where you would go and you would apply this. If you've oh, got is that where powder room comes from? Yeah, that's where powder room comes from. We're going to powder your nose. It's an 18th century and I never knew it was that. I always thought of it as more modern and having to do with powdering a nose. That's, wow, okay. Neat. It's actual powder. And now I mentioned that kind of pyramid a bit earlier on. So makeup, skin creams, skin powders, they're really expensive. And you could just use wheat flour if you were a bit cheaper. 
and you're working on a bit of a budget, you can just throw that on, that'll get you nice and white. But the idea when you wake up in the morning is that you need to look like you've never been outside. It's that idea of whiteness, paleness, establishing the fact that you can go from your manner to another manner, and all you're doing is getting out into a carriage and going to that dead place. And there is very little, it's, it's a show that you, can, you don't have to work outside. It's a show that you don't have, you don't belong working outside either. It's this idea of being pale and wealthy. And so you have to really put that forward. But also you have to make sure that you are being seen. So when you arrive at the ball, said ball, wherever you're heading to, you want to go straight for whoever is in charge or whoever can make your life a bit better can grant your mother a pension she's probably in your ear making sure you look gorgeous as well but also when you're when you get to to, to wherever you're going say for example Dublin Castle you want to make sure that you're going to the person who's going to make sure that you climb that social ladder a bit better in the case of some women they would have gone straight for members who were of the highest so you would have gone for an earl you would have gone for a duke or the viceroy and try and get in with that particular crowd or that particular clique and have talk to them and try and charm them and use your beauty and your charm and your guile in order to garner yourself a, a, a new cult or a new allure. And that's what establishes then you as a, as a beauty. Of course, men would have donned makeup. They would have donned any form of, of hairstyle as well. I'm focusing on women because of their social status. Okay. And you, when you are, when you are reading about these women, it's always a pursuit of beauty, strive for beauty, this resolve to be beautiful. It's labor and it's, it's work. It's it is work. And it, it is work. You need work to be beautiful. And so that's where the, where the vocation element I think comes into it as well. So that would be your typical day waking up and it will be a long day it'll be long you'll be dancing till all hours and you'll have to retire to certain rooms and make sure you're seen with the same sort of people or this the right sort of people and it's a long and you can do it all again the next day if it's a if it's a series of balls or redattos so it's a lot of work yeah and so what what was in it for the elite who were being targeted by these vocational beauties the outcome that they would have wanted is probably matrimony. And the reason I say probably is because a lot of what they do transcends, uh, goes beyond when they get married. So yes, they might strive to look a certain way or look beautiful in order to find a husband, in order to marry well and gain a certain social status. But what's interesting and the question that I love to pose to everybody why continue to wear the makeup then? That can't be your be all and end all solution as, as to the reason or the result as to the reason why you're doing this. Matrimony means that you will receive a dowry, your family might receive a pension, particularly if your marriage has been created or has been helped out by, say, for example, the viceroy or an earl or a duke and they've helped you get to this particular position a pension might be given to your family then so your family are benefiting benefiting from this as well what happens then too to you is that with this dowry with this money you're able then to to start to climb that status that social status a bit more yeah and so trying to think about it from the viewpoint of these wealthy 
and um, influential targets that these women had, the viceroys, the earls, what was in it for them? What did they get out of the attention of these beauties and having these beauties on their arms, so to speak? Yeah, it's a great question because when you, when you, when you're trying to read back and look at, try to get into their heads to see as to why, it almost cements a certain social status, which isn't as unusual as you would think. I mean, that sometimes that can still be applied in certain cultures. If you marry a certain person who is of a certain beauty, that cements your so, your social status. You got her. You got that yeah. woman who you got a hottie. You got, you a, got hottie. a hottie. You got a, a, almost <laughs> like a trophy wife in a way. You got this like nice little thing on your arm that you that that and everyone was wanting to 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 get. There are some. I remember I was reading. There was a fantastic description of a, a woman called Maria Gunning, who I'll definitely be mentioning. She grew up in Ireland. She was originally from England. Grew up in Ireland. Ended up marrying, going back to England. But there would be men who were of the highest born. They've gone straight into aristocracy. These are landed, landed gentry. And they are standing on chairs in James II's court, trying to view this woman, this beauty, from wow. over the shoulders of their other, like getting up on chairs to try. And these are men doing it, trying to catch a glimpse of her. And this is where you kind of get the idea of celebrity status. If you marry that person, and that's where I think the currency shifts. It's gone beyond just a bit of pension money and dowry. The, the, the currency shifts to, be, to status. Status then becomes the currency. And when you think and you look back at, for example, that, that shift when you go into the 19th century, which is a more romantic and kind of shunning the, the material wealth and, and the people being so obsessed with material and how they look. You can see that when, it, when, when material and how you look is all encompassing, that's the reason they're acting the way they do. And why marrying someone that gorgeous would be just as, just as, wor as worthy or just as of much worth as you would, you would think or you would think. And so, all right, uh, this sounds like it was a lot of work indeed. You, you had mentioned the hair powder, and then that was an immediate thing that one must attend to. But what, what else was involved in one of these beauties' daily routine of self-maintenance and preparation to go out in the world? The problem is when you're trying to follow fashions, as I was saying, they're changing quite quickly. One thing that does tend to stay the same is the importance of a lipstick which I just found fascinating. Lipstick was always saved or 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 given some kind of defense. So if you, you're definitely going to have lipstick on irregardless. Now, lipsticks could have had carminic acid in them, which causes huge allergic reactions in some people. I know the University of Michigan back in the 90s did tests on carminic acid, but sometimes with the reds, because you've got, it's red and white, are the main colors that you're using your white is your face powder and then red is your is your lipstick or your on your rouge if you have lead upon lead it's not great yeah we've heard some very bad outcomes of lead poisoning in the modern day <laughs> oh yeah and this this would have been lead oxides as well so um i actually when you're when you're looking at lead and especially when you're looking at carminic acid there was another i, I noticed there was another ingredient that seemed to be missing and that's mercury so you would have had mercury sulfides also oh my gosh <laughs> yeah <laughs> they come up with anything worse because <laughs> because if you're looking at an average day in the life the average day in the life would have been putting on your makeup 
putting on your hair powder, it's the continuous use of doing that. It's a long game you're playing and the it's that eventual end that will be your eventual end. If that makes any sense. It's the it's the daily applying or application of these cosmetics that are slowly, 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 in some cases, killing you. Yeah. And, and when you talk about balls and th- I mean, it's not like they had a, a couple of hours during the day they had to look presentable from what you're saying it sounds like they'd be reapplying this stuff to, to look good into the wee hours. Exactly. And you would have had maids almost, I suppose, like your first really form of professional makeup artist. So maids would have done you up originally before you went out. But then it was almost a sense of social status when you, while, while you're out, you would reapply it then. And there would have been public places that public enough within a within a palace setting that you would reapply then this, this cosmetic but if you have mercury sulfide on your lips and you're ingesting that it's a slow game it's over time and in a way you would have looked fairly well very striking anyway with really red cheeks and this white white pale skin with the red lips being quite predominant but it would have been as I, as I keep saying a daily use the biggest question I always get asked is um, beauty patches or mooshes, were they a thing? Yes, because you would have had marks left from the eruptions or the abrasions that lead would leave on your skin. And so the patch. <gasps> oh, so that wasn't just some invented concept of beauty. That, that takes its origin from a, a real medical condition from using these products to begin with? Yes, and they weren't small either. Now you have gorgeous little small beauty spots being drawn on by pencils by some makeup artists. Mooshes or beauty patches would have been huge originally. Well, not huge, but about the size of a pea, maybe bigger in some cases, maybe the size of maybe a cent coin. It would be quite big. And that was to cover the whole Mm. mark. And if you had multiples of them, you'd look a little bit like like a polka dot It'd be like polka dots on your face. So you had to be quite careful as to how much lead you would use. The problem is when you see your skin start to erupt you're, and you've been applying makeup daily, your natural reaction is to put more on. Yeah, right. I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> and did they even know? They, did they understand that there was a correlation between the makeup itself and the eruption that they were using more makeup to cover? That's the thing. They absolutely would have. I remember, um, I think you said that you like the 17th century. I do. Yeah. It's pretty brown and dull where I used to study it in the American colonies, but <laughs> probably much more exciting in the continent. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you love the Puritan form, <laughs> the, Pur- yeah. the Puritan aspect of, of what, what your face should look like. But you're dead right. The flip side of that what would have been happening on the continent. And they actually would have marketed different versions of ceruse as well. And ceruse is just lead oxide. It's, um, it, it's a version. It's a, it's a kind of a component of lead oxide that creates this micro abrasions that then just get deeper and deeper then you it's not you're not you're not pockmarked but your skin is just starting to slowly slowly come off so you think it's temporary and you put more on but there was venetian ceruse which was which was just a form of ceruse uh, that was in the 17th century so people were aware of makeup already lead poisoning has already been documented you have it being used in the first, the first use of lead is over 6,000 years old. And of course, it would have been used as well by the Romans. 
about and then you would have you as far back as about 2000 bc of course plumbum being the latin word and that's where you get plumbing or plumbism from because it would have been used for lead for for transporting water and for plumbing and so when they realized people were getting sick from water and from the transport of or the transport of liquids within these lead containers that's when people were going maybe there's a correlation between lead and what's in it got you right but they were willing to die for beauty yeah, <laughs> dying to be beautiful they knew they were well aware because even in the 17th and as you come into the 18th century alcohol was being stored in lead or they were using litharge which was like a lead oxide to sweeten alcohols and if you're using lead to sweeten your alcohol then and you're ingesting that that's going to make you very ill and it's going to they were like oh maybe there's a there's a thing here between lead and ingesting it so i have a feeling I'm nearly sure that they knew what they were putting on their face. And as you were saying, literally, literally dying for beauty. Wow. Well, it, it's, you know, it brings to mind the lengths people will go to for, um, you know, potentially dangerous surgeries today and injecting all sorts of, you know, potentially questionable substances into their face to control wrinkles and whatnot. I, I guess the more things change, <laughs> the more they stay the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. All right. Well, let's go back. Let's go back to our 18th century mm -hmm. beauty. Um, so what, what are her responsibilities mm -hmm. in a given day? Her responsibilities would be to ensure that the, that she is being seen, that there's this cult that's being, that's being created around her. And they're quite, mm, methodical in what they're doing they know exactly what they're doing i gave you the example earlier of maria gunning she at one stage went to hyde park in the mid 1750s about 1753 just after she was married and in a, in a, in a shielded in, in a cloaked carriage and then people would knew she was coming they all crowded around Hyde Park to go see her but she was hidden away and then she'd reveal herself and everybody would mob her then and it's <laughs> kind of creating what you what you would assume as like a cult of beauty around you which is and people always refer to as the Marilyn Monroe of her day because beauty will transcend like will will that her beauty will be known long after she's gone so you have to create that legacy pretty early on and you have to make sure that you work at that so your responsibility to yourself is not necessarily a a, a mature responsibility in terms of your physical well-being but for your legacy for what you're going to create which i think is probably a good way of looking at why women did it in the first place which is using beauty as a tool yeah, absolutely. And you know what I can't help but wonder as you're saying all this is, you know, what kind of legacy did they create in an age before mechanical reproduction of images? I'm actually really glad you asked me that question, Karen, because they, you, we were talking about mass reproduction and mass reproduction in a sense of not just getting your portrait painted, which would have been the initial reaction to when you witness a beauty everybody would have wanted to paint this beauty and have a painting of her done by him what is also interesting is how you wouldn't necessarily make money but you would allow your likeness to be used now 
I say allow because there probably wasn't a contractual basis. You weren't allowing a certain company to use your likeness, but cer certain companies would have been. The likes of watch papers would have been created and watch papers were tiny versions of larger portraits that would have been watch pocket watch or large carriage clock sized oh, papers. Okay. And they would have had a likeness of the beauty on them based off a portrait that would have been done. So, for example, in London, you would have had Sayers, who was a very famous clock company, and they would have done watch papers of beauties of the day. And they would have fit in just at the back of a watch. So when you lift the lid on the back of a watch to, to wind it to set the time, you'd have this, this little mini version of your beauty on the, on the back. Of a random beauty. So people would have, am I understanding this correctly, that, that um, <laughs> an average person who could afford such a thing, this watch paper, would carry around a picture of a beauty that he might not know in real life? He might not know, but he'd know of her. Oh, there's a, I'll buy, I'll buy her. I know her. I've heard of her. And you would almost have these like these celebrities that you could pick and choose from and go, That's I want so Maria Gunn. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but again, it's 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 almost like I suppose the modern example would be having a a navy soldier with a pinup girl on the wall. You exactly. know <laughs> exactly. I was just gonna say Farrah Fawcett poster in the 70s. Everybody it, had it. Yeah. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank. It's that kind of idea of picking a, a celebrity a beautiful woman and having that on uh, close to you and this was this was in, in the mid 18th century so that idea of Matt and I say when I say allow um it's not quite that they would they, they would have been aware of it I would say but not necessarily saying yeah will you paint me that'd be great <laughs> make me into a watch paper I'll make a bit of money they weren't making any money off of this necessarily but the current so who did make money off of that? <laughs> <laughs> the, the money's being made by these by the companies who are creating these wash papers, and they're they are taking they're using their cult of beauty, which they don't mind because the the, the women who are who are cultivating this cult, they're obviously paying off from it in terms of social status, which would be their currency, and then the watchmakers who are creating these little watch papers are financially making money off this too. So it's a win-win situation for both of them. But what's also interesting is that it's it's almost like a mass reproduction or as, a, as we were just saying, like a pinup version or, or an early version of a pinup girl for these men who were walking around the 18th century. And I just think that's absolutely fascinating. This almost like a paraphernalia associated with it as well. Yeah, well, the thought, I mean, it's much more intimate and it's something that presumably one would just be looking at at all times of the day, just pulling out their pocket watch and glancing at the time and <laughs> kind of a titillation or something, yeah. right? To see this beauty peeping out from the inside cover of their pocket watch. It's extraordinary. And I think that goes back to what is, what, what's referred to, and I'm using a lot of 19th century 19th century writers who are looking back and they're looking back on the 18th century and they always refer to beauty as all-powerful to the point where they even change change phrases well-known phrases that we would know so for example Alexander Pope's very famous phrase has been changed around and instead it's oh beauty our beings end and aim as opposed to happiness <laughs> so mm -hmm. the whole idea that that beauty is what should what should strive you and and again this pursuit of it and that in itself 
it's hard to do and so I it all fashions are I was going to use the word fashions itself but it does fashion itself from that idea of beauty being being a we- not even a weapon but a tool to use to elevate yourself within social statuses so Laura I mean social currency is all well and good and it's really mm-hmm. hard to come by in any culture mm-hmm. in any time but I'm still wondering how these beauties survived how they make a living yeah so their living then would have been through their marriage also through their ability to to take upon themselves the influence they were creating from it so in some cases you have some of these beauties or women who are of a certain social standing and they're using what their 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 influence to garner bigger audiences for certain subjects for certain patronages for certain charities you had the likes of Arabella Denny who was working in Dublin and she was using her social status which is that currency to create charitable institutions for women who were in Dublin so especially if you're younger and you have to imagine if you're a younger woman you're a beauty you've been snatched up by the richest man in the room more than likely he's going to be a bit older and so if he dies, you get the pension from him, you get the widow's money from him, and then the money that you take then, you can use to survive. So I don't know if that sounds familiar in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard of that happening. It might have happened in, a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to name any names or assume it about anybody, but it's, we all know that there's a bit of that that sometimes does go on. And We've talked a bit about how men of a certain social status viewed these women and even viewed them many times a day from their pocket (laughs) watch. Uh, What what did other women think of these beauties and sort of what was their standing in society more generally speaking? Yeah, so particularly with the Hyde Park incident, which I'd mentioned there with Marie Gunning, that would have been a lot of women who would have gone to see her. And you have women who want to copy these beauties want to wear what they're wearing, want to try and copy what they're putting on their face, what they're wearing. And that's why um, I mentioned the kind of the, the whole idea of the pyramid and it trickling down through social strata. You would have had people who couldn't afford the luxury components of these amazing ingredients that were used for these women. Like lead oxide wasn't wasn't cheap back then. And so you would have had people copying what they were wearing as well. You would have had them copying them but of course, you're also going to get a sense of jealousy there as well in some cases. And um, the likes, I keep using Marie Gunning, but she's a great example. Her husband, who would have been the Earl of Coventry, of course, 18th century, he would have gone and got himself a concubine of sorts, a woman, a little side lady. And the woman who he was apparently having an affair with tried to tackle Maria Gunning in the in the street in and this was all a big because she's a celebrity physically tackle her i wish that would be great uh, verbally verbally attack her and what's noted was she, the woman kitty who he was having a, having an affair with wasn't of a certain social status so she hadn't married up like like maria had and so she couldn't say what she wanted to say to her to Maria because she wasn't of a certain standard she wasn't of a certain social status and so you have some women then who would go well you, the only reason that you're that you're referred to as a beauty is because you married well 
So what's the biggest mistake one of these beauties could have made in the 18th century? The biggest mistake they would have been, it would have been doing it too early, I think, <laughs> would have been using lead too early. It was really a, a, a potluck. And the continuous use of it, why once you have married, you need to continuously use it. You find some women kind of slip off the celebrity status. They kind of slip off into just becoming such and such as wife once they get married that must have been their initial goal and then some of them are still using makeup and still donning these cosmetics in order to to to, to bask in this cult of beauty that they've created i think that's the mistake because they are they are aware in some extent that this is not good for you but because they're already pretty you can kind of take yourself and go okay well I'm going to convince myself that actually it'll be okay. It's just a bit of makeup. I'll, I'll survive. I'll, I'll get past this. And then you realize that you don't. And so some turning points then can be in the biggest mistake you can do is to continue to use it and continue to, to kind of catch yourself in this vicious cycle. Also, a, biggest, a big mistake you can do then is defy who essentially owns you, which in the 18th century is your husband. And so a big mistake would there would be defying what, what he wants and what your what your husband is is expecting of you uh, for some examples you've got ladies or beauties being having their makeup wiped off by their husbands at banquets because they don't want to have that stuff on their face oh interesting so once they've once they've landed the trophy wife they they don't want them to be quite so publicly working working yeah. that look working that look because if you're going to create a cult of beauty and you're going to be so so famous and so beautiful you could nearly outshine the person who you're married to in a weird way because yeah. you're so famous and yeah that makes sense and that still hasn't changed either in no. some, in no, some no, areas no. and so the, the the mistake i think then that they would make we wouldn't agree with as modern women we would go yes live your best life but in the 18th century that's their biggest mistake is defying their, their, their responsibility as a wife as well and their role as a wife and as a woman still in 18th century society. And so beauty is all powerful, but it can be, if, it's, if the tool isn't used right, it can ultimately be their downfall just as easy. Oh, it sounds incredibly complex and, and kind of a fraught vocation, right? Because I can imagine that for these women, a great deal of their identity and sense of self-worth would have been wrapped up in this cult of beauty that they propagated around themselves, which depends on continuing to look a certain way, the way the public expects. I mean, yes, the public clamors to see, okay, what, what does she really look like? But they don't want to see a celebrity looking like that all the time. They want the red carpet look. So it's a little bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> exactly. You're, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. And I think the idea of expression is very interesting there as well. Because with the, with the resolve to pursue and to strive to be beautiful, there has to be a distinguishing feature there. There has to, so there has to be something that distinguishes you then from the other women who are around you. What makes you pretty? than that person and that's where I think the idea of beauty then becomes is even as complex in and of itself because it's that it's the it's the need to, dis to distinguish between you and the other who were probably who we would assume is all beautiful around you and then you kind of get into the idea of of prettiness and beauty in and of itself and trying to deconstruct that whole thing is 
and you see it happens again and again humans are obsessed with it and you even have it for example ancient rome with eyeliner you have it in the roman period they would have were obsessed with their eyelashes Pliny the elder would have actually written about eyelashes themselves and how women really looked after their eyelashes and he even comments on putting eyeshadow or a stain on your eyelids to, to which is other people trying to, to distinguish themselves and use as a form of expression as well yeah well and this makes me wonder just listening to you talk about that what what kind of relationships i mean that's probably overstating it but what kind of uh, connection was there between these different beauties of the 18th century i i, I wouldn't imagine there was any sort of society <laughs> as such but but did no. did any of them support one another do you, do you have any evidence for yeah whether they sort of watched each other's backs or was it all just back you know backstabbing survival of the most beautiful I really wish there was like a society of beauties that would have been formed and I really wish there would have been because I think that they definitely needed it what you yeah, find it sounds like it <laughs> yeah I mean it would have been great what you find is a lot of these women who are beauties would have actually ended their lives or ended their reign as being beautiful in quite solitary times just quite solitary terms for example I know I keep referring back to Maria Gunning but she spent her last one of her last moments even maybe the last year of her life alone in a dark room she didn't want anybody to see her if you build your mm. whole vocation on being seen and then that is taken away from you or that that isn't what you have anymore the ability to be seen or to be beautiful then what do you have and so irregardless of if you were friendly with, with another beauty or not it's very hard to find evidence of them communicating if it isn't in a competitive way if it isn't in it well she has this lace cap so I'm going to get that lace cap if it isn't in a who is the best or who is so a la mode it's hard to find a connection that is and maybe if they had in hindsight it's very powerful maybe if they had realized what their own ending would have been or how they would have ended up they may have joined forces that would have been fantastic but unfortunately it is quite a solitary role if you look back that that seems to be consistent about a lot of their endings which is quite sad really it is terribly sad it's it's the opposite of beauty it's so ugly yeah and I think that's sometimes when you go and I usually refer to it as the mannerist effect you've already achieved perfection you're already naturally beauty beautiful and even when you're looking at evidence of, of some of these beauties, usually they're referred to as the providence that has already been bestowed on them. And you, the writers are telling you they were already gorgeous. They were already mm. beautiful, but they sought to mend or amend or pursue their beauty. They, they sought to change it and fix it. And I refer to it as like a mannerist effect. You've already achieved perfection. So now you need to be more beautiful. You're already beautiful. That's established. Now I need to go beyond more and more and more and more lead, more mercury, more vermilion, more, more products. And then what happens is, it, as you said, it goes beyond and it turns the other end. It goes ugly. It goes, it's not perfect or beautiful anymore. So it's a, it's an interesting cycle. And it's something that's never really gone away. And it tends to transcend war disease social political upheaval and it's something that we have been obsessed with literally forever 
that is a heavy, heavy statement. And I, I'm going to say that I, I agree with you. Well, why do you think beauty and its pursuit has been elevated above survival in some cases? Yeah. And that's, that question is, is, is such a loaded question as well, because you have to try and take into account, is it the individual? which is what's constantly reminded to you with the whole idea of, and that's why the exhibition was called in the eye of the beholder. It's the person, it's, it's what you would deem as beautiful. Everyone's, everyone's individual aspect of beauty is very different, but then there's a collective version of beauty as well. And so if you are not happy with what you see in the mirror, which is what a lot of these women wouldn't have been if they sought to keep amending their beauty, then that mirror is like the person in the mirror is the only person that really matters at the end of the day. But it's very hard to, to try and, and, and tell yourself and believe that if there's a collective understanding or a collective notion of what beauty should be, then you have to question, well, who is saying what is beautiful? Who's determining who's beautiful? Who's determining the canon in a way? And so then you have to, you have to look at who's calling, Who's saying, who's saying it's beautiful? Is it the people who are, is it you developing your own cult of beauty around you? You might not be that gorgeous, but you've created this, this allure and this huge cult of personality that people are drawn to you. Or is it that you are just genuinely gorgeous and you stick out amongst a group of people? And so when you are looking at, at beauty itself, the fact that that is so entangled in humanity and being so intrinsically human it is and and you know as an anthropologist what fascinates me particularly about the question of beauty and what it is is that it varies so tremendously between Mm -hmm. cultures and over time you know you can have on the one hand a culture that values women who are stick thin and that's the the epitome of beauty and then one that it's quite the opposite you know (laughs) and and that yeah that goes absolutely to the core of what it means to be human and to be human in a particular time and place i think um, I, and I just, I'm thinking, we've been talking a lot about this early modern Irish situation and these women at court. How, how would you compare or contrast it to your studies of the medieval time? Do, have you looked at all at representations of beauty then and how it stacks up with your more modern era work? Yeah, yeah, because my, um, when I was looking at the 18th century, I was kind of drawn into it just because of where I work as well, but also how cosmetics and the use of cosmetics were, particularly when you're looking at the, from about the 11th to the 15th century, you would have had, again, as you were saying, different cultures have different aspects of beauty. The forehead was actually the big thing in the 11th and 15th century. So you would have had, that was like a very erotic feature of your face. How (laughs) interesting, the forehead. Okay. (laughs) So you would have had, you would have had them pluck back their hair, like their hairline to elongate the forehead or make it even bigger, which is why Elizabeth I is always looking like she has a very big forehead because those top layers of hair would have all been plucked back. And so, you would have had very little eyelashes, very little eyebrows, this kind of very big head, almost like a, a, like a wide head. And so in, in this case now, it's a very different version because it's not usually cosmetics. It's not the actual products, but it's definitely being aware of parts or features that are being distinguished. And that's nothing new, but in the medieval 
period, there is a highlight of a different of, of a feature. But again, what's that been? What's that been? Who's 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 telling you that this is beautiful? Right, right. And why does it matter? Yeah. If one person is doing it and someone else copies it because they look particularly beautiful and the forehead is deemed gorgeous and and then you have other people trying to copy them as well. So um, when I was looking at medieval and and particularly when I was looking at the 18th century, it's this start or this beginning of a of a material culture and this mass group. Now, in, in this case, it's not mass reproduction of of, of yourself or of like of likeness. What are the badges? it's tokens yeah it's it's kind of it's material and it's the it's the start really of mass produced material culture which which if it has its roots in the 12th and right up into the 15th century is going then to of course as you know in history everything comes around again but just when it comes into the 18th century then you have this neoclassicism you have even they're even copying what's happening in the late 15th and early 16th century and they're taking it and they're developing it it just gets more and more and more it just becomes out of control. <laughs> and then you have then this layering, layering. But even from when we were talking about earlier on about Elizabeth I and Ceruse and the idea of white makeup, that that those origins are in the medieval period in the Middle Ages as well. They're from the 16th century, really onwards, that you're you find these white daubs, these paints and creams. So not a million miles away from the 18th century. No. And it's interesting because I, I think I've never actually considered cosmetics from this viewpoint. I mean, I have looked a little bit at uh, garments and fashion and, and I, I know that there are periods of time in which sumptuary laws limited who could have access to a given item. And it was even beyond whether you had the, the means to purchase something. It was whether you were of a, a, a class or status that was allowed to wear it. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't help but think a little bit about how that might relate to this makeup topic. And, you know, was anyone able to go out and wear this white makeup who could afford it? Or was there some notion that it wasn't for everybody, that it was only for the beautiful, the naturally beautiful? Yeah, that's a really good question because you then have to consider who is actually wearing it. And so it, it would have been essentially pitched because it was an expensive item to the aristocracy however what it's what makeup is also caught up in and where its history mainly lies is the theater ah okay yeah and so i mean theater history and makeup and theater history has been done a lot before but particularly when it comes to people who would have been playing actresses and people who were actresses which were mainly of course prostitutes and so what happens then is once prostitutes are allowed into these social circles which they would have infiltrated in the 18th century and you would have spotted them at the likes of rotunda balls or redottos particularly in dublin as well so again these men having their side ladies who are turning up to these balls with their wives there as well some of them are prostitutes and they're also wearing makeup the and painted be, ladies, right? Is that where painted, that comes from? That's where. That's exactly where I was getting, because that's where you get these painted ladies, the painted ladies of the night. But then what happens is, is that makeup becomes associated with 
with prostitutes and with with uh, painted ladies as you were just saying and the fact that they can don it as well so then as you hit as you come into the 19th century and you you leave the the, the toxicity of the 18th century behind and this this party element of, of just everybody you know really enjoying it and, and and using makeup you have the the detrimental health effects coming out from that as well so as you get into the 19th century you see a huge step away leaving that leaving cosmetics in the past because that becomes associated then with as you were just as you were saying painted ladies so as you as they tend to take on a bit more of a, of a cleanliness approach an approach to hygiene physical well-being and head into the 19th century that's when you see a huge shift it's almost a 180 there's no makeup it's very um it's very plain face it's very natural mm -hmm. you have the, the first face masks being created as well that are purposely put online you have you have women in the 19th century talking about how to remove tan uh, more naturally and you know i'm struck you you're talking about the turn of the 19th century and a, kind of a um uh, an embrace of more of a fresh faced look as yes. being beautiful but you know then as now that's really the province of the wealthy and the leisured class people who don't have to work outside in such a way that their skin is weathered by the sun people who can afford a healthy diet and so you know they get that inward glow and all of this you know it, it sort of really seems to um be even more of a divisive beauty trend even though it sounds on the surface of it quite like the great leveler <laughs> yeah it, 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 that's the thing it's 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 just pitched it's, it's all marketing it's how it's pitched and sometimes when you're when you're reading through it and i always find myself like falling into like listening like looking reminding myself of, of gifts or memes of people just kind of going you're not you're not ugly you're just poor which is like, <laughs> exactly because <laughs> like get over it <laughs> which is like, there's, a, there's a few memes of that it's like showing somebody and it's like oh. you're not ugly you're just poor and in a way you're like oh my god that is that is exactly what's happening here and nothing necessary if you can afford those amazing products and if you can still afford and as you said package in a way that sounds natural and and very easy yeah oh anybody by. can anybody can accomplish that yeah well no that right. takes work and and leisure and time and money yeah yeah, go make your own cosmetics. Well, I'm actually working a 14-hour shift in the field, so <laughs> I, and I, and I can't afford the organic ingredients. I can't get my hands on spermaceti, which is they also use for face masks, which is um, fat or lard from a sperm from a sperm whale. So, like, that's ex that's expensive. Oh yeah, I've got so. I've got some of that in my cupboard. Did you want to borrow some, Laura? <laughs> Next to my lemaire and my yeah, no, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> so yeah, you're dead right. Absolutely. Oh, Laura, can't thank you enough. This has been incredibly enlightening uh, just to, to really delve into the good, the bad, and the ugly of female beauty through the ages. No, thank you so much. And thank you very much, Karen. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks for having me on. Aside from the dead serious health risks of pre-regulatory makeup products in general, I'm struck by the ultimate cruelty of Dublin's 18th century cults of beauty. There's an almost tragic aura around these young women who went all out to earn the adoration of the public 
only to be shunned once they lost the looks upon which their social currency and personal identity depended. It was all an illusion, and a time-bound one at that. No doubt about it, the quest for beauty on the outside versus cultivating a healthy sense of self turns ugly fast. Like I always tell my daughters, pretty is as pretty does. Thanks, as always, for listening, and catch you next week. Hey there. You can follow today's guest, Laura Fitzzachary, at LFitzHistory on Instagram. That's L-F-I-T-Z History on Instagram. And at Laura Fitzzach on Twitter. That's Laura, F-I-T-Z-A-C-H. Also, check out our show, Dublin's Historic South, wherever you get your podcasts. Have an idea for a working overtime episode? A question about how we make the show or just want to say hello and share your thoughts? Connect with us on Twitter at Working OT Series. We'd love to hear from you. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.